0: Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy conversations with people. Hello, you soon learn to expect the unexpected from the dead and the living wise words from today's guest one of new zealand's leading pathologists dr Kinrick temple camp cut his teeth in the rhodesian air force as a medic during the bush war he's written two best-selling books the cause of death and the quick and the dead funny moving and grisly accounts of some of the most horrific and baffling crimes that have rocked new zealand dr temple camp dazzles us with stories that include spontaneous combustion, exhumation, drug mules, devil worshippers, rare diseases, cot deaths, and a controversial landmark murder case. So, Dr. Kinrich Temple Camp, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, Pete. Good to be here. You know, I'm unusually excited about today's conversation. I think everyone loves a bit of crime and investigation. Um, Now now you graduated from the University of Rhodesia and then the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh. On returning to Rhodesia you joined up as a Rhodesian Air Force medic. Was it in the RAF or the Rhodesian Air Force that you first got your taste of death and injury? Uh, But of course you weren't a pathologist back then were
1: you? No, I was a newly qualified uh, doctor with the, the ink on my diploma was barely dry and uh, my experience of, of, of uh, real life was quite limited. No, I'd been exposed to, we'd all been exposed in, in, uh, at the uh, Godfrey Huggins School of Medicine to a fantastic man called Kevin Lee, Dr. Kevin Lee, who did all of the um, forensic uh, work in, in, in uh, Rhodesia, as it was then, and he was an outstanding lecturer who sh- uh, showed us all sorts of uh, cases that he'd been involved in, and it was really quite fascinating. We learned how to investigate murders and how to deal with uh, decomposed bodies, and I thought, no, this is fantastic, and uh, it, it really it lit, lit up my interest completely in the way that clinical medicine never really did.
0: Um, I must confess, Henrik, on reading The Cause of Death, you come across as a man with a very funny and macabre sense of humour, but also an enormous respect for the deceased and their loved ones. I suspect this is a fairly common trait within the forensic pathology camp.
1: Yes, I, th- I think so. I mean, people often ask, how, how do you deal with these terrible things that you see? You know, children who've been killed in accidents or murdered, Uh, you know, women raped and strangled and so on. How do you actually deal with the stress of this? And it's it's, uh, an interesting question because we don't have counselling or anything like that. Um, And I think that black humour is very much part of every mortuary that I've ever been in, between the pathologists, between the pathologists and the police, the ambulance workers, the firemen, and um, also our mortuary assistants. So I, I think that We all develop that sort of approach to to life and death. But having humor about somebody who has died violently in some way doesn't imply that there's lack of respect. I think the humor is there for us as an outlet. Our respect for the dead, we don't see them quite as the dead. I, I see them as my patients. I am the last doctor that will ever look after them. I am their last advocate in this life. And my job is to tell their story because they can't do it themselves. So that's the sort of approach that um, I bring to pathology. And I think it's quite common with forensic pathologists.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I'm going to touch on that topic a little bit later. Um, And I'm, I'm also going to get to some of your cases you worked on in a minute. But first, I must tell you the thing that got me was how TV shows like CSI Miami are an exceptionally sanitized, distant cousin of the real pathology world, although perhaps BBC's Silent Witness gets a little bit closer.
1: Is that true? Yes, I've watched most of these, but not for long, because, uh, as you say, they're very, very sanitized. And, of course, they have to be. And what you cannot get across on a television program is the amount of liquid involved the liquidity of death you know the amount of blood and fluids in a body is enormous and when we do an autopsy it is everywhere it's a very you know we always talk about going down to the mortuary and splashing around it uh, in our work and that's exactly what happens you can't get that on television you don't get that sense of liquidity and the other thing you don't get is the sense of smell now the dead have a smell, and I'm not talking about decomposed bodies, even people who are freshly dead have quite an unusual aroma. And <clears throat> I once had the opportunity to take <clears throat> a group of coroners around my mortuary, and we went and we made sure that it was all clean and there were no bodies lying out there, nothing, nothing to shock at all. And the coroners came in and they stood there a bit uneasily and they looked around and they said, what is that funny smell? And I hardly, could hardly notice it. And I sniffed it and I said, that's the smell of death. And they said, good Lord, is that how we smell? And I said, yep, that's exactly how dead humans smell. And you never get that on a television program.
0: Absolutely. Now, uh, now Kenrick, I mean, you seem quite immune to smell, funnily enough. And you mention uh, that autopsies, you've already just said it, are rather a liquid affair, which To us, laymen is rather revolting. But, uh, But one case, and I'm referring to the body that was cooked in the car, even got you gagging. In fact, you have a wonderful turn of phrase, I must say. In the book, you say, pathology acquaints you with some pretty choice aromas, but I'd never smelled a stench like this before. It wasn't the smell of death and decay. This was somewhere between truly rancid fat and low-grade paraffin with a sulfuric tincture of rotten eggs. It's a fabulously fascinating case, in fact. Can you tell us what you believe happened during that
1: case? Yeah, this was a most most unusual case, and I have to say my description of the odor there undercooks it a bit. It was much worse than that. Um, This was a case of, of spontaneous combustion which a lot of people don't believe exists uh, and they've, in cases that have been reported, usually they invoke witchcraft or ghosts or something like that. But actually the, the reality of it is quite simple. It's people who have drunk a vast amount of alcohol, and I'm talking about a really vast amount, and the alcohol gets throughout their bloodstream into their fat, and then the fat of their body, and then they go to sleep while they're holding a lighted cigarette and it, their, their um, clothing catches fire, but it doesn't burn, it smoulders. And it's like a candle wick and it burns into the fat, which acts like the wax in a candle. And, and of course, you can light a candle in a car and it's not going to set the car on fire. It will make smoke, but the heat of a candle, you can put your hand right next to a candle flame and it will not do anything put your hand above a candle flame, it gets quite hot. So this man had left the pub and he was driving and he'd bought a bottle of vodka there. He'd been drinking all night, bought a a bottle of vodka quite illegally from the bar owner and headed off across country. And he stopped out on a rural road, drank the bottle and lit up a cigarette and drifted off into sleep. And when we got there, he was just a smoldering pile of... Uh, <clears throat> really burnt fat with a good portion of the body missing, and only the legs remained there. It was ex- very odd, and the two hands were left lying there because hands haven't got much fat in them, so they don't burn. But this provided this dreadful smell, and uh, which is quite characteristic of, of the spontaneous combustion. <clears throat> so a very unusual case. It's the only one that I've ever come across.
0: Uh, you know, I didn't even know spontaneous combustion was a real thing. But having heard it described like you, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, yeah. I've, yeah, I've recently been watching, and it's only just come out in, in the UK, a series called Des, which is about the serial killer Dennis Nielsen, um, acted superbly by David Tennant. I think it's a three-part series. Uh, what was extraordinary about the fact that Nielsen was eventually convicted of six murders, despite confessing to 15. Yet the the forensic team not only ran out of money, but they were never able to identify many of the bones. So, you know, unlike uh, your TV shows, you know, forensic pathology isn't foolproof because you are hampered by budgets, you're hampered by the lack of manpower perhaps, and also time,
1: because they have to get the court case going, don't they? Yes, uh, they are very time-consuming, particularly a homicide. When I am called to a homicide, that's usually several days out and out of the um, laboratory. uh, You have to go to the scene and investigate it. And in the old days, the pathologist was always the first on the scene so that you could relate the injuries to what lay around you. That's changed a bit now with DNA because we have to get the uh, scientists in there first to swab the bodies to pick up uh, DNA and you don't want to contaminate the scene. But it's, it's very technology and time intensive to do it properly. And it was one of the great pleasures of coming to work in New Zealand that we only have 50 murders a year, so that's one a week. So that's, that's actually very doable spread across the, uh, the two islands Whereas in, for instance, in South Africa, they would do sort of 15 or 20 murders every Monday morning. And there's no way that you can investigate those properly and uh, get, get the full story out. And here, the police never give up until the file is closed and, and they, they have found the, the, the perpetrator. So life here has been quite, it's been really interesting to actually follow these cases from the beginning to the end, right the way into, into court and beyond.
0: Yeah, very. it's, it's so interesting. Uh, let's, let's take a step back, Kenrick. Tell me a little about your time in the RAF, the Rhodesian Air Force. You were based mainly at Kariba on the border with Zambia during the war. In fact, the book opens with a somewhat toe-curling story about a pregnant woman in Kariba Hospital.
1: Yes, no, I wasn't actually based in Kariba. I, I was based first of all in Thornhill, uh, sorry, in, in at New Serum. Um and uh then subsequently for the last uh, part of the Bush War, I was based in Thornhill. Um and from New Serum particularly, I was deployed out to different forward airfields. Kariba was one, um, there were a number that I that that I was sent to. Basically, to do the uh, Kazabak type work, and yes, I'd forgotten the story in the book. This this was a, a tribal uh, woman who had been caught in a in a, a firefight, and <clears throat> it had, a bullet had punctured her lung, and she had a pneumothorax. And I was uh, went in on on the helicopter to pick her up, and had to put a chest drain in and bring her out. And it was really quite extraordinary because. She was not uh, a modern woman by any means. She had scarification marks on her face, tribal marks, and her teeth had, were filed in the front. And um, I just thought, you know, picking up somebody like that who lives out in the Zambezi Valley and putting them in a helicopter and then flying them to uh, Harare, just, I just wondered what on earth would she think? What, how, how would she relate to this? It's really quite extraordinary. I can report that she did survive.
0: Okay, good. Um, then you decided, and I, I need to get this right, you decided to pursue forensic pathology or was it just general pathology? And you went to Hritskjö in Cape Town under the tutelage of the
1: world-renowned Professor Dirk Ace. Yes, that's, that's right. Now, this was, this was uh, anatomical pathology, which is basically the pathology of tissues. Diagnoses, for instance, like if, if, if you have a breast biopsy or a prostate biopsy or a skin biopsy, uh, our job is to diagnose that. So we do have a lot to do with the living. In fact, that's probably 95% of my work. Uh, but the other part of, of the training at Rutiscule was, of course, autopsy training. And I was very fortunate to arrive there in uh, uh, April of 1980 and um, went and made an appointment to see Dirk Ace, who was a really, he was quite a well-known and feared professor, and I had an interview with him and he said, well you're very lucky young man, I have a job available right now, you can start tomorrow. And he was he was a great teacher and a great mentor to us. and many zimbabweans passed through there at one time i think two-thirds of our department were from zimbabwe and he he looked after us he was a he was a a great teacher and a great pathologist Uh, kenrick your your description
0: whilst at cape town your description on the organs of the dead people is highly entertaining if not slightly alarming uh, can you tell us about that because obviously this is a practice that is no longer done, by the way, for anyone listening. But this was back in 1980 in South Africa. Um, you used to throw the organs away, but but tell us about that, will you?
1: Yeah, it was, it was an interesting, uh, I, I guess the world was different then and our approach to what's permissible and what's not permissible, patients' rights, uh, have changed quite substantially. Um, back there in the 80s when we did an autopsy we would remove all of the organs from the body plus the brain and we would dissect them of course which is what an autopsy is autopsy means to see for yourself and we would then um put them into a big vat of formalin to fix so and the body was then stuffed full of sawdust sewn up and returned to the relatives, and we kept the organs. And the organs were then brought out on a Friday and demonstrated to Professor Ace and all the uh, lecturers in the department, plus uh, uh, the professors from the um, hospital would come down and examine the organs with us, and then they'd be uh, burnt. And sometimes we'd remove a patient's spine if they had a spinal uh, condition, And Sam, our mortuary assistant, would then get a broomstick and put that in to replace the spinal cord. And they would be returned to the relatives full of sawdust and with a broomstick. Now that, of course, (laughs) is, is, is quite illegal these days. I mean, every single portion of tissue has to be returned meticulously to the body. And certainly in New Zealand, we are only allowed to keep tissue with the express permission of the um, coroner and it has to be microscopic pieces. And when we finished our diagnosis, the family are contacted to ask if they want them back. So it's changed enormously, but back in those days, really nobody thought anything of it. And in fact, in those days, if you found an interesting organ, sometimes they'd be put into a pot and put in a museum and that's the way it was.
0: Yeah, quite. I, I, also, of course, there was the added uh, problem of witch doctors in Africa. Uh, sometimes the organs found their way to an, a witch doctor and were used in,
1: in witchcraft, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we all were aware of the, the the concept. And the only practice that I came across this was with our mortuary assistant in um, or Sam. Sam was a great favorite of ours, but he was caught on at least two occasions selling portions of organs. And I remember the, the last time that I was a, le- a lecturer at Cape Town at the time, Professor Ace calling him and saying, Sam, you've got to stop doing this. If you do this again, I'm going to have to tell the police. And, uh, you know, that was, I guess, a <laughs> sign of the times too, that uh, we had a professor who felt that he was above the law. He could do what he wanted. And, um, so that was extraordinary i i did hear of a case in in rhodesia where a um uh, b- back in the early days where a truck a man was found dead by the side of the road and he'd been run over by a truck and the police treated it as a hit and run and they went and picked up the they knew who it was they picked up the truck driver and he said yes yes he had done it but he said the man was already dead he was lying on the on the um Uh, on the road. And he said, they put a body there. When you stop, then they rob you. And um, the police, of course, didn't believe this. But when they came to do an autopsy on the body, they found that some key organs were missing. And it turned out that he was, in fact, had in fact been dead. And uh, some of his organs had been harvested, we presume, for traditional medical use Wow. Um, in fact, it was at Grotesque
0: you allowed a young female artist to sketch you during an autopsy. Um, what surprised me is that you have the picture hanging in your bedroom. Is
1: that true? Yes, yeah. It's a it's a beautiful picture. And Prof, Professor Ace called me in and said uh, that he had met this young lady at a party somewhere and promised her that she could see an autopsy because she's believed that she needed to know what the inside of a body looked like so that she could paint the outside and of course she has that belief in common with leonardo da vinci and a number of early uh, artists so i Ace asked me to show her and i spent a morning with her and was very entertaining and she then drew a um, i suppose you'd call it a, a sort of modern type version of what she thought an autopsy looked like which was a mixture of organs and myself and all sorts of strange things. And um, yeah, no, it's a beautiful picture, and I have it. We have it hanging in our bedroom. Gosh, does it, does it help you sleep at night? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even notice it actually.
0: <laughs> um, Kenrick, why did you after after the uh, the, the Rhodesian Bush War? Uh, why did you choose the dead over the living?
1: You know, it's. Um, a lot of people ask that Uh, I enjoyed clinical medicine, I I enjoyed it immensely, but I think you either have a feeling for it uh, a passionate feeling for it or you don't now my wife Elaine is a hematologist and she just loves her patients she's always chatting to them and um, she's a people person now I'm more of a backroom boy I like things like Sudoku and crosswords, solving puzzles. I like looking for the hard science of looking for the evidence, putting it together, and coming up with the conclusion. That to me is is uh, <clears throat> that that's the ultimate triumph of of of, of my job. And of course, <clears throat> as I've said before, the the dead that I work with, they are my patients, as indeed are the biopsies that I get from living people. So I do have something to do with living people.
0: Um, so let's move away from South Africa. You moved to Palmerston North in New Zealand, and by all accounts, it's a smallish, sleepy place near Wellington, and yet rich with pathological pickings. Indeed, you've now become one of the leading pathologists in New Zealand. Um, in your book, The Cause of Death, you talk about, um, you go on to say something quite Amazing and alarming about the decomposition of living bodies, Um, and I'll just quote you: We are we are born with one hundred percent of the DNA in our body. In middle age, seventy percent of the DNA is bacteria, and oddly, only thirty percent is ours. That's a pretty
1: gruesome thought. Yes, well, I mean, the number of, of organisms. That live in and on our body is enormous, and of course, without them, we'd be very ill. They actually keep us well; they provide all sorts of uh, advantages to us. Uh, The only and we have to there's an endless battle between our body to keep them on the outside and them trying to get on the inside. And of course, that all fails at the time of death. So very quickly, they invade your body, and you become one hundred. Your DNA becomes one hundred percent organisms
0: well it's it's a bit like that movie the alien i must say with having some other things living inside me i didn't realize at my age i was 70 percent alien
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess we all
0: are (laughs) okay so when reading the book i often get the impression or vision in my head of you rubbing your hands together when a particularly challenging case falls onto your lap but i suspect Most cases turn out to be rather pedestrian. Um, But let's talk about some of those cases. Um, Let's talk first about the poor kid whom the police thought was a drug mule. Um, You had to perform a fairly ghastly, or perhaps it's routine, I don't know, autopsy on the kid to try and find the drugs.
1: Yeah, now this, <clears throat> this, this case was, a, was an odd one. Um, <clears throat> a car was seen by the side of the uh, State Highway 1, which passes about 30 kilometers away from us. And there was a leg hanging out the door. and Hundreds of cars drove past it for several hours before somebody reported it to the police. And in there was a young man lying dead with blood around his lips and some froth on the floor and an empty milk carton next to him. And he the police investigating found his passport that he had just arrived from melbourne and they had this theory that a drug mule was on his way having swallowed some condoms of cocaine uh, they were looking for somebody and they thought this is him and one of them has burst so i was called out to the scene and had a look at this and agreed that that was possible got him to the we rushed him off to the mortuary and it was getting quite late at night and I opened up his stomach and his bowel to retrieve the condoms packed with cocaine to find absolutely nothing at all. And we looked at each other in absolute puzzlement. And (coughs) I subsequently (coughs) got his full story from, (coughs) excuse me, from his mother. Um, He was a PhD student who had gone for an interview for a job in Melbourne. He was also a diabetic and he had injected himself with his insulin, and then set out to drive from Palmerston North to Whanganui, which is about three hours. And he did this in the early hours of the morning, and nowhere was open along the way. And he obviously, his blood sugar began to drop and drop, and he had no food with him. He had a, a carton of milk, which he drank, and it wasn't enough. And then gradually, he pulled over to the side and lost consciousness and died. It's, it's, it was a, it's it was very sad, death.
0: actually. It's terribly mm-hmm. sad. And if you hadn't spoken to the mother, you probably would never have got to the bottom of it, would you?
1: No, that's right. You never would have known what it was. It would have been a mystery, because in every other way, he was quite intact. His death was not due to some disease that you can see. It was due to a low blood sugar, which you can't see.
0: Mm. I mean, his mother's
1: uh, a lovely lady, and, you know, she was... She was she was really lovely to talk to and so <clears throat> helpful in in putting together his story and she was delighted when I wrote it up. Yeah, the the the,
0: the second chapter in your book, something uh, called <clears throat> the the naked woman. Now it's fantastic, especially since I came from a farming community the woman had been stripped and apparently beaten to death in a paddock close to the control tower at the airport. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, this was extraordinary. I I was called out to the scene by the police, and this woman was lying hanging attached to the fence between the farm and the airport control tower. And her clothing was strewn across the whole field, The whole paddock, right? Oh, probably about 150 meters, including her car keys and so on. We thought this is very odd. And she was severely battered. And um, my opinion to the police was quite firmly that this was a homicidal maniac had done this. I was very young in those days. And this was one of the first cases that I had in Palmerston, And I was quite clear that this is what had happened. And the beating had been very severe. And on the basis of what I told them, they arrested her husband. And I've met the husband and spent some time with him. And he was held in custody for three days and interrogated. And they insisted that he must have done it. And uh, he kept saying, uh, telling his story. And they said, you know, we just don't like your story because every time you tell it, you say exactly the same thing. And he said, because that's the truth. That's what happened. And as it turned out, he was right, she'd been killed by a bull. And this was a bull from the neighboring farm, which jumped, was known to attack people and it jumped the fence because there were some cows nearby and it was obviously interested in them, spotted her and started chasing her. And she had always said, if ever you get attacked by a bull, you must take off an item of clothing and throw it down and the bull will attack that and then enable you to get away. And what she'd done is she'd walked backwards from the, away from the bull, which was obviously pawing the ground and and following her, throwing, taking off her clothing and throwing it down. And then finally, when she reached the fence, it rushed at her and and gored her. And we tranquilized the bull and measured the, uh, its boss across the boss of the skull and matched it with her injuries exactly. And there was no question that that was was who had done it.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, One of your first jobs in New Zealand was to dig up a body. For you, the exhumation was another first for you. But the description of the decomposing body was absolutely ghastly.
1: I tell you what, Stephen King should read your book. (laughs) That was an extraordinary case, um, and I hope your listeners will, will buy the book and, 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 and read it. But yes, it, it was an extraordinary thing, and the most extraordinary thing to me was that the body was covered by a fungus, um, which was white and it was bioluminescent, which meant that it actually glowed in the dark. Now, of course, exhumations are always done at night. I mean, I always thought that that was sort of something out of vampire movies. But no, we did it at four in the morning. And when we got the lid off the coffin, which wasn't easy, there was this glow, you know, just like luminescence. It was extraordinary. And this extraordinarily sweet smell came off this fungus, too. I had no idea what this was. And I've asked many, many people at, at the university here, if they know what this is. Nobody does. And eventually when my book came out, an Indian mycologist who studies fungi contacted me and said, I know exactly what this is. This is a fungus called the candle snuff fungus. And he said, yes, you're quite right. It's bioluminescent, which is extraordinary. And it um, has this sweet smell. And he said, I've never heard of it being found in in an exhumation before he said but that what you've described that's clearly what it is very, i thought very the nice. name candle snuff fungus is just beautiful isn't it
0: that's so dis- dis- uh, that's so descriptive and, and of course all the police were in the bushes on their hands and knees puking and you you had to go down into the coffin didn't you
1: yeah to try and get the, li- the lid off which was really difficult because when you stand on a coffin lid how do you lift it
0: yeah
1: you know, without actually getting into trouble. And I couldn't, the police couldn't get it off. I couldn't get it off. And eventually the undertaker went down there. And by the way, he was wearing a, his, his, his undertaker jacket and, and cravat, and, <laughs> you know. Because <laughs> he was there to drive the body back to the mortuary once we got it. But he went down and he was able to uh, uh, work out how the clasps were undone. It was a real, it was an extraordinary case. And it's the only one, in fact that i've ever done
0: tell me kenrick do you allow yourself to get emotional were there any cases that have haunted you for a long time you
1: know i think about them a lot um and usually it's the children particularly that that i find uh are the ones that i wouldn't say they make me emotional i find it quite depressing you know really that they they really bother me the rest, as I say, they are my patients and I just do my best for them. I, you know, the way I work it through is, is saying, I've just got to tell your story. I'm here to do that.
0: There was one particularly horrible case, Echo Quebec Alpha, the plane that went down near Wanganui. Um, a pilot, eight passengers, two children and one baby died. Now, what struck me... Um, was how the impact affects the bodies um, the pilot's navigation map was stuck to the inside of his spine, and then more disturbingly y- you knew there was a baby on board, but you couldn 't find the baby can you Can you tell us something about that
1: yeah this was this was a, a particularly bad accident uh, the, the aircraft had lost control at altitude and spun into the side of the mountain during the most atrocious weather it was heavily overloaded and I think there were eight or nine passengers on board I, I can 't quite recall but we were able to retrieve um, most of the body well at least sixty percent of the body bodies parts of sixty percent of the bodies but there were the baby was missing and we couldn't find any sign of the baby and I had a portion of a body there, and I thought that this was a woman, but I wasn't sure. And um, when I started did the autopsy and opened her up, I found the baby had actually gone through her ab- abdominal wall and been thrown into her pelvis and was stuck in there just from the impact. And from that it became clear to me that this was the mother and she'd had the baby sitting on her lap and that's how the baby had ended up there and it was interesting i met her mother and her sister and talked to them about this and um, they said that they were really really pleased to hear that because they the one thing that they'd always said to each other is they hoped that their daughter and uh, sister was holding the baby when it happened and i was able to say to them yes i think she was
0: And then, you know, rather bizarrely, the baby
1: ended up back inside the mother. Right inside the pelvis, yes. Yeah, wow. Right from where he uh, he had already originally sprung.
0: Wow. Um, Talking about babies, you've seen and worked on quite a few cot deaths. And even today, cot deaths are a little bit of a mystery. Um, But I I might not be correct, but am I correct in thinking it was you who found a connection between cot deaths and baby formula?
1: Well, no, I didn't discover that. I I had a case. It has been recognized for uh, some time that um, formula, baby formula is fine for babies, but you have to use it in the correct dose and they give you a little cup to measure it out. And what is a great mistake is that people say, "Well, the baby's not settling; I'll thicken it up a bit," and then they put in a bit extra, and the problem with formula is it's got a lot of sodium salt in it, much more so than than mother's breast milk. and the case I had was a child where the thirteen year old sister had been tasked to actually feed the baby, and she was just pouring it in large quantities into the bottle. Uh, to make it up. And this child got an extremely high sodium level in um, her blood. And uh, that can be fatal, it will be fatal, particularly in, a, in an infant. And that's that was the cause of death. So it's one of these things you got to be very careful about. Is this well publicized
0: that uh, baby formula can be dangerous to a baby?
1: I don't think it is. It's, it's well known to forensic pathologists.
0: Yeah, it's Those of us who
1: investigate uh, cock deaths, but uh, is it w- widely known out there? I find not, because a lot of people who have read The Cause of Death have contacted me about that and said, you know, we really had no idea. Why don't they put a warning out about it? There may well be one on, a, on the tins. I haven't actually looked. I yeah. would be surprised if there wasn't. I mean, Kinric, it's
0: important for loved ones to have closure, isn't it? Dr. Temple Camp, you repeat this point throughout the book. In fact, you say, the job is satisfying the needs of the living as well as offering a cause for the death of a loved one. Nothing could be worse than hearing at the end of the process that a coroner's verdict of death from unknown causes. People want
1: a reason for the death, don't they? Absolutely. You you it's very difficult to come to terms with an unexpected death that makes no sense. In my second book, The Quick and the Dead, I tell the story of Jason Chase, whom, whom, to whom the book is in fact dedicated. And Jason was a young man, I think he's 23, who went up into the Ruahini Mountains here for a bit of time out. And when he came down, he was found dead after some some days. And there was no cause of death. He was just lying on a creek bed with absolutely nothing. He had no trauma. He hadn't been assaulted. He hadn't committed suicide. He had no poisons on board. There was absolutely nothing to find. And it took, I kept that case going for 16 years before we found the cause. And what had happened to him is in coming down through the mountains, he had walked through a bank of a plant here called the tree nettle, uh, the onga onga nettle or Urtica ferox, and this is the most toxic nettle in the world. And um, he was found in nettle creek, and he had walked through the through this uh, band of, of of nettles, and it contains a toxin called trifendin, named from the day of the trifids. And this is a neurotoxin, and this is clearly what had killed him. But I said to the family for years before, I said, I just don't know what has done this. If, it, if this were Africa, I would have said it was a snake bite. But of course, we don't have snakes here. And finally, we, we got the answer. Wow. I mean, that, that must take
0: days of research, trying to go through every single thing to find out what the problem
1: is. Well, I didn't. I, I couldn't find anything. I'd looked at everything. And it was 16 years later, I was telling a, a a retired general surgeon here about jason 's case and what a mystery it was, and he said, I know exactly where that is he said that that will be up in the lower Ruahini ranges and he said he 's walked into tree nettles and he went up into his files and he came out with a, with uh, the report on two young men that this has happened to in one thousand nine hundred and fifty four exactly the same thing and I went and researched it, and I found that indeed this is this is known to the locals as a deadly place to be but uh, no, i d- didn't know about it so i couldn't put them together and when i went to the family and we went through it and looked at the site that was clearly what had happened um one one of the things i love about your writing
0: um there are plenty of funny moments in the book but what does come across in the book is the respect you have for the dead you say we should be reminded at all times that these were real people no longer living, but were our patients to whom we owed a duty of care and compassion. Um it's 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 wonderful actually, because although you do have this humor, I think it's important that you have this compassion as well.
1: Yes, I I, th- I think people forget that pathologists are also physicians, first and foremost. And um our approach to our patients is the same as any any doctors would be. At least I hope it is. Yeah. Now uh, let's move
0: on a little bit. Your the, uh, your evidence often will lead to convictions. Does it worry you that you might get a knock on the door late one night from an angry family
1: member of a convicted criminal? <laughs> no, it, it doesn't worry me. And uh, I, you know I don't convict criminals. What I do is I collect the evidence. The evidence is is what I put forward. The prosecutor will examine that and decide whether there's a case to answer or not. And in our system, a jury will hear the evidence and they're the ones who decide whether the person's guilty or not. You know, it's not me, I don't decide that. Having said that, in all of the cases that I have been involved in, I follow up what has happened to the perpetrators in prison where they've got to, whether they've been rehabilitated, whether they've been released. I find it quite fascinating to see their journey through the penal system.
0: Mm, Let's talk about the penal system. In fact, let's talk about Mark Lundy, arguably the most publicized and controversial murder case of your career. What was your role in that murder case?
1: Well, Mark Lundy was a salesman who, was found guilty of murdering his wife and child um, with uh, by chopping their heads with an axe one night and i was not the investigating pathologist but i was called in to investigate uh, his the shirt that he had been wearing that night and on this they had found two microscopic pieces of tissue which I examined a smear from and said, to me, this looks like brain tissue. And they said, how will we prove this? So I set in place, my colleagues and I set in place um, a connection with a leading expert in Dallas, Texas, Rod Miller, who deals with this sort of work. And he was able to cut the piece off the shirt and turn it into a specimen which could then have sections cut and be examined under the microscope, and we established beyond any reasonable doubt that this was brain tissue. And that was instrumental in leading to his conviction because, and then the DNA was his his wife's. But but because um, Lundy was meant to
0: be 400 miles away or something at the time.
1: Yes, he was He was uh, in Wellington, uh, which is a good two-hour drive away. And to have got there would have been taken quite a drive, but um, certainly within the bounds of possibility. The case,
0: of course, came back to haunt you years later. Um, this was the Crown Prosecution retrial at uh, Her Majesty's Privy Council in London, now, at the appeal hearing in London, they even went as far as to suggest the brain was from a sausage. You must have been furious. Uh, <laughs> you know, although you still had enough humor to suggest in the book, having brains in your sausage during mad cow disease was something Kiwis would never tolerate, even if Brits did.
1: <laughs> yes, well, I had to have a go, a go at the at the Brits. Yeah, the Privy Council was very interesting. I spent three days there, and my evidence was given to their Lordships. It was quite an interesting process, and of course, they uh, there were dissenting views who thought it wasn't brain tissue, and their Lordships said, "Well, how can we tell the difference between one expert and another? What you are required to do," they said to the Crown, "is hold another trial." And get two world experts, one for the prosecution, one for the defense, to work collegially together and tell us the truth, which is what they did in a second trial. And they said, beyond any shadow of a doubt, this is brain tissue. This and, was, um, this this was before DNA,
0: point. wasn't it? So, no, d-
1: no, the DNA was done as well. And okay. that was, that was um, Mark Lundy's wife, Christine. It was her DNA. Wow. So it wasn't the DNA of a cow or a sheep or a pig, it was yeah. a human DNA. Mm.
0: I get the feeling that you often had to bite your tongue during the, uh, the Lundy Appeal hearing at the Privy Council. In fact, I think you quote, if it suits the lawyer, or it might be a quote from a quote, if it suits the lawyer's narrative, they will undermine first the scientist's testimony and then their good name.
1: Yes, I, th- I think that's that's true. It's I've spent my life in New Zealand here, um, involved with the adversarial court system which we have here, and it's a good system. It's a jury system, but it's adversarial, and that means that evidence is challenged by the defence and and all the prosecution. But I don't think science should be in the hands of an eloquent lawyer who asks questions. I think that if there's a doubt about the science, that more and better scientists should confirm one way or another. I don't believe that uh, verbal uh, uh, trickery has got any place in establishing what is the truth about science. So that that's always been my feeling about it
0: yeah or politics which is going on right now in america with covid correct um, yeah. now pathology reporting needs to be exact otherwise it can have catastrophic effects on a person dead or living on families on communities and and even how the law is applied in later cases you said earlier you don't have counselling on a lot of these cases, do you? Particularly when when it comes to children and babies.
1: No, we, we, we don't. Um, they have started to introduce this, uh, and we sent our mortuary assistants, who are all very robust folk, off for this because our health and safety regulations said we had to do this. So we sent them to see a psych- clinical psychologist of some sort and they came back uh, the the three of them and they said doc if you send us there again we're going to resign and i said why and they said that person's madder than we ever were so uh, i don't know i don't know <laughs> what good it actually does you know we deal with these things we're not the only ones the uh, some of our mortuary assistants were volunteer firemen i always found that they make excellent mortuary assistants they've been to aircraft accidents they've been to uh, people killed at railway crossings trains. Uh, car accidents, you know, I I think people, we deal with it. Um, Kenrick, time is marching
0: on, but was it you who said, by knowing and understanding death, so too, we may also come to know and understand ourselves. Why are we fascinated with
1: death? I think we are the only animal that knows that we do not live forever. I've got two Labrador dogs, and they both have no idea that they're going to die. Whereas humans know they're going to die. And the only thing we don't know is how and when. And I think we have a fascination with this, which is why we're interested in spirituality, why we're interested in religion. And I think our fascination with death is part of that. We know this is where we are going. And I, I suspect that's the basis behind it.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I talk about being fascinated with death. Did you ever see that macabre exhibition? I know it went to New Zealand called Body Worlds. The exhibition featured flayed corpses with afflictions like smoker's lung and arthritis. It went all around the world. The purpose of it was never to shock, but to educate and to inspire visitors to look after their own health. And apparently it did. A lot yeah, of people I, a
1: lot of people stop smoking after that i can I can believe that we have got pots here with lungs in them which are full of cancer and and carbon from smokers and uh, back in the eighties and nineties these used to be lent we used to lend them to schools uh, to actually show the kids there we're not allowed to do that anymore either of course, but that's the way things were back then that we lived in a a simpler, less regulated society, I guess.
0: Yeah, um, it surprises me that New Zealand allowed them to bring in all of these flayed bodies, because you can't even bring a bean sprout into New Zealand these days, can you?
1: No, no, we're, they're very conscious of it, and thank goodness for uh, uh, this huge ocean around us.
0: Right, Dr. Temple Camp, let's plug your books, The Cause of Death, published through harper collins is available now on amazon uh the quick and the dead as i said earlier in my conversation to you i can only find audio and kindle on amazon but but perhaps it's just still too early tell me very quickly about the latest book the quick and the dead i only know of one story which really had me chuckling the deliciously grisly story about your childhood in Rhodesia and and you had putsy flies burrowing beneath your skin of your neck it's very funny and i might add i had a putsy fly in my head and another in my calf and i still have the scars to uh i, I still have the scars from where they ate away the flesh Well yeah i've got
1: i've got the psychological scars <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what is the quick and the dead about? Is it about your time in New Zealand again, or is it does it go back to your
1: childhood it 's a mixture of of um, African and New Zealand stories, and this one is about the dead and about the living and the living were the people who expected to die but didn 't and it 's their stories that i 've told and that was fascinating for me to go and meet these patients, as most of them are, and hear their story and uh, write it for them. So it's a mixture of living and dead. Similar stories uh, to, uh, about the dead uh, as to the first book, but the difference is the stories about the living, and then some philosophical thoughts about the chance of, what are your chances of dying and how do we handle random chance? Well, I've got to tell you,
0: I, I must tell my listeners, you must buy the books, The Cause of Death and the, the Quick and the Dead. The Cause of Death is absolutely fascinating and funny and moving and, uh, and sad and, uh, and remarkable. So please buy it everyone. Um, Dr. Kinrich, Temple Camp, we are woefully out of time, but a thousand thanks for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood.
1: Thank you very much. Keep safe.
0: Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.